for these precious words. And we thank you that throughout our study of the letter to the Hebrews over the last number of weeks, you have revealed and reminded us of some truths. So we pray that you would do the same this evening. I pray, Lord, that you would give give me the right words, and I pray, Lord, that each of us would have the willingness to listen and to hear. Not me, but you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 13, and uh, I shall just do an introductory bit and then I shall read the text itself. I want to start with with a well-known phrase, no pain, no gain. And that's where we are tonight. Mo Farah won the Chicago Marathon 11 days ago. Did you know that? Well, I saw it on the news. And he, in the process of doing so, he broke the European record for the marathon. He's already got the British record. That chap is amazing. What an athlete. Such determination, such inspiration. I can't begin to think about running a whole marathon. (laughs) 26 odd miles. In my a little more than 30 years in the army. I had to keep fit. And for a lot of that time, I did it by running three times a week or so for three or four miles at lunch times. Not something I enjoyed. In fact, I hated it. (laughs) I'm not one of life's natural athletes. But I did it because it was enough to ensure that I passed the obligatory fitness test that happened every six months which was grueling. This evening, we're going to hear the author to the letter to the Hebrews describing our Christian lives as as a, a marathon of sorts. Life is not just a sprint where you give it your all for a short time and it's quickly over. It's a long distance run. It's easy to get worn out and to want to throw in the towel long before the race is over, and it takes stamina, it takes patience, and it takes, it takes endurance. But how do we keep running when the hills are too steep? How do we keep from losing our faith when problems and challenges of life seem insurmountable? How do we run to the end when we're exhausted and hurting? Well, it might sound a bit trite, But here's that old expression again. No pain, no gain. Our text this evening calls upon us to remember the pain that Christ suffered and that it was for our gain. And that the victory is always ours through him. We are to remember that the pain God allows us to endure now is not without its reward. It's for our own good. We gain strength in this life and we gain a crown of glory in glory that will never be taken away. So let me read to you from 
Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witness, cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their fathers? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons or daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits? and live. They disciplined us for a while, for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our own good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. We ask that God would bless to us this reading from his word. So the author begins his encouragement to the Hebrews by reminding them of the example of the heroes of faith who have gone before them. And he speaks about being surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, two Sundays ago, when we looked at Hebrews 11, that chapter has a big long list of heroes of faith who achieve, whose achievements for God make up a significant part of what we would consider to be the Old Testament narrative. And it's those heroes who form the great cloud of witnesses that he's referring to. For us, in our day, those are the same cloud of witnesses, but we've got an even even bigger cloud of witnesses, I suggest, who are lining the root of our own race, not only the Old Testament heroes of faith, but the countless other heroes whose stories of faith and whose achievements in adversity, whose witness and whose impact upon our lives have been an inspiration to us personally 
and collectively. In our text this evening, the author goes on to encourage his readers who may well have been questioned, who may well have had questionable lifestyles and may also be suffering from hardships themselves as converts to Christ from Judaism, which they were, he's encouraging to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before him, before them. In my army days, the fitness tests twice yearly had to be done wearing boots, not trainers. And we also had to wear full combat kit as well. <laughs> Sandra's smiling. She remembers what David had to go through. That's in total contrast, incidentally, with the original Olympic Games in which the athletes would run naked because their clothes would have slowed them down and tripped, and they would have tripped over them because of the robes that they were wearing. Today's athletes, of course, run in shorts and vests and specialized, specialized trainers, and some of them even have special fabrics designed for the purpose of helping them to run or compete, however that is to be. No one would consider running in wearing an overcoat or a long skirt, or even combat kit. <laughs> but that's the picture that the author is making. It's the same way with our sin. They trip us up in the race. They trip us up in our human lives, in our Christian lives, if we let them get in our way. So they will make us fall and lose the race. So the author encourages the Hebrews and us to throw everything off that hinders. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? For me. How do we get rid of sin? Seems impossible. You know, I was really impressed by some words that Adrian spoke last week. Now, most of you were not at the men's breakfast unless you snuck in at the back. But he spoke to us at the men's breakfast about sinful habits in our lives, how we can lose heart in our feelings of shamefulness. We can feel trapped. He himself admitted that he had something of a, an obsessive or addictive personality. And he said one of the difficulties for all of us is that we can become addicted to addiction. That's a thought worth bearing in mind. I've pondered that this last week. Yes, we all know about sin. We all know how hard it is. But even though breaking habits or wrong attitudes is nigh on impossible for us, it's not for God. And the author encourages us with a way ahead to look to Christ who already took care of our problems of sin. What does he say? Well, he, quote, he gives us a verse that I remember growing up with because it so happens that this verse is, Hebrews 12 verse 2, is the motto of the Crusader Union. 
Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Fixing our eyes, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the goal and the objective of our faith, the beginning and the end of all that we believe. He has achieved our salvation for us by enduring the cross. He's also the supreme trainer, Jesus is, and the principal encourager and supporters on our race. And he's also the one who puts the medal round our neck at the finishing line. These verses, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That is at the core of our text. It's the core, the central tenet of the gospel. The fact that Christ has already won the victory as our incentive, that's our incentive and our example. He took the punishment that we deserve. He took the shame. He took our guilt. So now we can focus on the goal and keep our eyes fixed on the finishing line. Within seconds of Mo Farah, crossing that line in Chicago 11 days ago, his wife came running out from the crowd and they hugged each other. He'd been in training for that race for months and months and they'd been kept separate. He hadn't seen his family all of that time. That's the life of a world champion professional athlete. But for other athletes in Olympic training, they train for years, giving up social life, putting in hours and hours of hard work every day, hopeful yet uncertain that they will be selected, let alone win a medal. We, on the other hand, run the race of life already knowing its outcome. We already know. We already have the gold medal. We know that because of what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished for us, heaven itself is the finishing line. So now motivated by his love for us and what he's already done for us on the cross, we are to find new resolve to keep running. We're called to consider what he did for us and our certain reward and let that knowledge and our faith give us confidence and assurance to help us to guard against growing weary and losing heart. But if Christ has already run the ways for us, why not just take us to be with him in glory? with that great crowd of witnesses already 
who've already won? Why doesn't he just make our lives easy without so much pain and sorrow? Why does God allow us to suffer? There's an old age, age old question for us. The answer may not be easy or comfortable for us, but the author of the Hebrew to the Hebrews says God allows you to suffer because he loves you. When God allowed suffering to enter the lives of the Hebrews, he was demonstrating his love because he was strengthening them in their faith. Running around the streets of Woolwich and Shooter's Hill three times a week, and particularly the six-monthly fitness test for all of those years, often felt like punishment while we were struggling to do it. But it was for our benefit. Being fitter and healthier was much more than just being a military requirement. It was to our own advantage. We were the benefit, benefiters. No pain, no gain. When God allowed the Hebrews to end to endure hardship, it was for their own good. I've no doubt that it felt as if they were being punished. So how could they be sure that their suffering was caused by God's love and not by his anger? Well, if we go back to the text again, in verse 5, we read this. You have forgotten my words of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as a son. The author reminds them of God's word by quoting a passage from Proverbs chapter 3 in which God told them that he would discipline his sons. And that's precisely what is being repeated. Uncomfortable as it feels, he lovingly disciplines us so that we can grow stronger. Verse 7, For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone over undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits? Our fathers disciplined us for as little, for a little, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our own good so that we may share in his holiness. The Hebrews knew, not just from God's word, but also from experience, that true discipline is done out of love, not from anger. As a child, that's difficult for us to understand, isn't it? Isn't it? (laughs) We've all been disciplined before as children, as younger people. 
We may have thought that our parents were unreasonable or cruel for grounding us or restricting pocket money or whatever, the, whatever it was. We may not have enjoyed it at all, but with hindsight, our parents were only trying to keep us out of trouble, trying to help us to grow in an appropriate way. It was for our benefit. It was for our own good. No pain, no gain. So that we can share in his holiness. That's what the scripture says. He encourages us to have before our eye the image of his own son, who is the ultimate example of discipline and godliness. So as I finish this Bible study, because that's what I believe it is, I want to quote Paul, whose mind was on his own race. And this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, and it says this. Paul is saying this. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. Praise God. Amen.